Wow, what an amazing, amazing, powerful story we have during Christmas. I just love Christmas. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're like me, then this is just the most wonderful time of the year. I love, love, love uh, Christmas. I've always felt that way, even from the time when I was a little kid. For me growing up, I always remember that we had this nativity set in our home that we would set up uh, each year around this time. How many of you in your home, you have a tradition like that where you set up a nativity set in your home? You've got some figurines around the house in December. I always remember looking at our nativity set. My mother had handcrafted it, and, and it was always something that came out every December. And I always like to just look at these little characters here. It's just such a wonderful thing. You see there, the Mary, she's full of faith, and Joseph, uh, full of fear. Uh, you've got angels blowing their trumpets, and you've got wise men bringing their gifts. It's just such a wonderful uh, thing. As a boy, I think it was just the simplicity of the Christmas story that I, that I just love so much. And maybe the reason why I love that story was because for me, in my family of origin, Christmas was so, so complicated. I came from a broken home, and if you're like me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Christmas is complicated if you're from a broken home. Uh, One year it was with dad, the next year it was with mom. The kids were rarely ever in the same place. In fact, like for the first 20 years of my life, the six of us were not ever all together on Christmas. I loved my mom, I loved my dad, I loved my siblings, but we just couldn't be together because it was so complicated and uncomfortable. So sometimes it was two of us, sometimes it was four of us, sometimes five of us, but never all six of us because it was so complicated. And so Christmas, though it is this amazing time of year, for me, it was often also a reminder that there are some things and some problems in this world that I could not solve. They're complicated. And I wonder if anybody can relate to that. And so for me, because of those complicated feelings, when I finally left home at age 18, I started to wonder, is this nativity story actually real? And when I left home, I left home with a lot of questions, spiritual questions, skeptical questions, uh, questions about the Christian faith, questions about the Bible, and I became really skeptical about this Christmas story. And if you are here tonight and you are skeptical, then I can probably relate but best in the room to you. Maybe you feel some skeptical questions on the inside of you. Maybe your story is like mine, or maybe it's different. Maybe you've been hurt by the church, or maybe you stayed away for a time, or maybe, maybe you felt like you prayed for something in your life and God just did not come through for you. Or maybe you're just not sure what you believe and it feels like you've been deconstructing and reconstructing your faith and you're here tonight because it's Christmas and this is the thing to do. And we want you to know that if you have skeptical questions, you are welcome here. There is a lot of skepticism out there today, and some of it, can we be honest, is really well-founded. The church has had many abuses and scandals in recent years. Leaders misusing their power, moral failures, not listening to victims, not being a voice for the voiceless. It's easy to get cynical. And nowadays, I've noticed that people come to me and they're wondering, not just is Christianity true, they're also wondering, is Christianity even good? Is this belief system good for the world? Does this lead to society's progress? Or does Christianity actually lead to backwards thinking and bigotry? And so to answer those questions, we're finishing a four-week series tonight 
called Is Christmas Unbelievable? It's based on this book by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. She got her PhD from Cambridge where she asked these four questions, the big four questions of Christmas. And if you're just joining us tonight, let me just catch you up on where we've been in the series. Week one, we talked about this question. Was Jesus even a real person? Like, how do we know that Jesus existed? Is Christmas another mythical story just like other mythical stories like Hercules and Horus and Mithra? But what we, what we discovered is that when you look into that, Christianity is actually totally unique compared to all of those other stories. And what we also discovered is that from the Old Testament, the life of Jesus was actually prophesied, predicted in advance in this book called the Bible. It predicted the place of his birth and uh, the manner of his death and many other details. And we also discovered from historical sources outside of the New Testament that Jesus was a real person and Jewish historians referred to him and Roman historians referred to him, people like Josephus and Tacitus and Suetonius. And then third, there's a lot of evidence for Jesus' existence by the people who actually followed him, right? That's the documents that we call the New Testament. And so if Jesus was a real person, that kind of led us into week two, asking a different question, where we asked this, can we take the Gospels seriously? So these are the four books that talk about the life of Jesus, and sometimes you hear people have doubts about that. They say, are the New Testament documents reliable? Are these things corrupted? Don't we just have like copies of the older stuff? Don't we just have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies? How do we know what we have today matches what they wrote back then? Are these gospels reliable? And what we discovered is when you look into that question that we can trust the New Testament documents as reliable and accurate and true in contrast and in comparison to every other Greco-Roman work of that time. In fact, take a look at this infographic on the screen. The documents we have about Jesus are deeper and wider than any other historical record that we have of any other ancient historical figure. You'll see on the one side of this chart the average amount of manuscript evidence we have for a Greco-Roman work compared to the other side of this chart, which is a mountain of evidence for this person of Jesus in the New Testament, and that actually stacks up to over a mile high. And the New Testament, the Gospels, are totally unique in this way. And the fact is, we know more about Jesus than we know about any other ancient historical figure. And so if these documents are reliable and accurate and they match what we have from the earliest sources, which they do, the next question we asked was pushing the issue a little further. Week three, we talked about this. How can you really believe in a virgin birth? And so some people come up to me and say, Pastor David, okay, maybe I can believe in a creator, transcendent God who made the universe. But how can I, in our modern 21st century scientific age, believe in something like a virgin birth? That sounds totally crazy. And I can understand why that feels logical. But if you'll actually think that through, it's quite illogical. In other words, if you believe that there is actually a creator, a transcendent God who made everything, then it's not that difficult to imagine that same God creating one human being in a unique way. And so if the supernatural claims of the scriptures can be trusted, we started to think about what does this mean for our worldview? Does believing this make us anti-science? And what we found is it's exactly the opposite, that Christians over the last few centuries have been the pioneers of science. In fact, what we said is if you look at the impact of Jesus' followers on society, you'll discover everywhere you turn in our broken world, from the first century to the 21st century, that wherever Christianity takes root, human flourishing follows. And so if you look at this mosaic, 
This collection shows us that at the forefront of every major social movement, you find Christians in the fight for human rights. You find people like Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, William Wilberforce, all committed Christ followers. We sang that song earlier tonight, Oh Holy Night, and there's that verse in the middle of that song, The chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. That was a Christmas carol written during the Civil War by Christians fighting for the rights of the oppressed. And if you look at the historical evidence, you'll see Christ followers have always been on the forefront of social progress, leading to make this world a better place. And so here's the problem, I think, with what we're doing today in the West. Even though we're built on this Judeo-Christian ethic and all of our ethics and values are built on top of the Christian worldview, what our culture wants to do now is pull out the person of Jesus, like maybe pulling out the bottom Jenga block on a tower and hoping that the tower is still okay if we pull out that one block of Jesus. The problem is the tower won't stand. It's going to topple. Because you don't get things like meaning and morality and ethics and human rights and equality and a sense of divine purpose from a purely secular worldview. You don't get that from a worldview that says you're all random chance accidents and it's all just about the survival of the fittest. You don't get those values from that worldview. And so Dr. McLaughlin says in her book, it's not like pulling out a Jenga block. She says it's more like pulling the pin on a grenade. It's going to blow. And that led us to the fourth question where we are tonight. This final question, it's the most important question you could ever ask and answer in your life. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the question that he asked his followers, right? Who do you say that I am? And to answer that question, I want us to go back, back, back to the beginning, to the Christmas story, because it's possible sometimes to go through the whole month of December and never hear the Christmas story, And we don't want to do that. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 2. The beginning of the Christmas story says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be giving birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, let me pause right there, and I'll come back to the rest of the story in a bit. Look at verse 15. Let's go to Bethlehem and see. Notice how the shepherds reacted to the news of the first Christmas. First of all, they didn't dismiss it. Though it was an extraordinary claim, they did not try to explain it away as a hallucination or as a hoax. 
Secondly, though they did not dismiss it, neither did they uncritically just accept this thing as a fact either, right? No, what did they do? It says, let's go over to Bethlehem and see for ourselves this thing that has happened. In other words, they investigated the claim. And when I first read verse 15 and I saw that, I'm I'm, I'm like, man, that's really great because that's what I needed to do. And that's what I think we all need to do. We all need to go and see this thing that has happened. We need to go and see for ourselves. And that's what we've been trying to do in this series. Because for some people, they say, well, you know, Jesus, okay, Jesus was a great person. Jesus was maybe even a great teacher. But to suggest, Dave, to suggest anything more than that, you're going too far. But the question you have to ask yourself about that is, number one, what did he say about himself? And number two, what did other people say about him? And the first bit of evidence is that Jesus' whole body of teaching was centered on himself. Now, if you think about that in comparison to the other great religious leaders of the world, they always point away from themselves. They say, don't look at me, look at God. But not Jesus. Jesus, who personified humility, says, look at me. Come to me. For example, consider some of his direct claims. Like when it comes to questions about meaning and purpose in life, what life is all about, that sense of spiritual hunger that people have, that sense that things in this world just don't quite satisfy, this slight void, this sense that something is missing. To those needs, Jesus says things like this, I am the bread of life. Born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. I'm here to supply those needs for you. Or there's stuff in our lives that we don't like. I have stuff in my life I don't like. I have things, I have habits that I find to be quite addictive. To those things, Jesus says things like this, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. We're all enslaved to something and we will only find freedom in Jesus? That's the claim. And then there's that other stuff that we carry around. The worry, the anxiety, the fears. And for those things, Jesus makes statements like this, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. There are so many things that Jesus has said that we're kind of used to because we've been reading the Bible or we've been coming to the church and we've heard them for so long that we don't recognize how outlandish they are. No other created being would say these kinds of things. Just think about that statement on the screen. Can you imagine Moses saying something like that? Can you imagine Isaiah the prophet saying that? Can you imagine Confucius saying something like that? And then there are his indirect claims. For example, Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. He went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, if somebody offends you, you can forgive them. But you can't go up to some random person and say, your sins are forgiven. In fact, when Jesus did this, they got really upset with him. His enemies said, who do you think you are? Who could forgive sins but God alone? And this is why the Christmas narratives say that his name would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And so forgiveness is really at the heart of what Jesus came to do, to make forgiveness possible. It's at the heart of the Christian story. And for me, when I went on this personal search in my life, during that skeptical time, I also had simultaneously a personal crisis. And it was then that I became in my life very aware of my own shortcomings and my own sin. And I was able to find an answer only in the person of Jesus Christ. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the scripture teaches that Jesus shed his blood for me and the whole world as a gift. That's the gift of Christmas. That's the message of Christmas, that when God looked down and he saw sinners like me, he didn't turn away from me. 
He didn't turn away from you. He didn't turn away from us. Instead, he came toward us, God with us, to forgive us. We hear a lot today about learning to forgive yourself, and I think that's okay. You should learn to forgive yourself. But the primary need we have in the world is to be forgiven by God. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to make a way. This is why he says things like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And people see that kind of claim and they go, whoa, that is just way too exclusive. But what if it's not too exclusive? What if it's just the way? What if he's just being clarifying? And then there are his biggest claims. Like, let me remind you of some of the things Jesus said about himself. He said things like this, I and the Father are one. One time one of his disciples, Philip, walked up to him and said, show us the Father. And he says, as long as you've been with me, Philip, and you don't know me. One time they asked him, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than our father Abraham? And he's, here's what he says. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's horrible grammar. But that's really good theology about the person of Jesus Christ. That's the name of God that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This is who Jesus is claiming to be. He's saying, I am God, Emmanuel, God with us. Do you realize what that means? If Jesus was just a teacher then the things he is saying here are completely inappropriate because these are honors only God is able to receive. Yet Jesus' followers came to worship him as Lord. The Magi came to worship the child. That's so important because I noticed that a lot of people try to park Jesus Christ with all the other religious leaders out there like Muhammad and Buddha. But Jesus Christ won't let you park him there because of the magnitude of his claims of divinity. It's an astonishing claim. Now, a claim like this on the screen needs to be tested. And if you think about it, there's really only three possibilities here, right? Number one, either it was not true, and Jesus knew perfectly well it was not true, in which case he is a fraudster. You should not listen to anything he has to say. Stop reading 1 Corinthians 13 at your wedding. Don't take this guy seriously. Number two, the second possibility is it was not true, and he simply didn't realize it was not true. He genuinely thought he was God, like a David Koresh type, and he was deluded. Or third, and logically, there's really only one other possibility. Third, it's true. This is what C.S. Lewis, one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century, said. He said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else insane, or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So this is the claim, and a claim like this is really a big deal. Is there any evidence that we can use to test a claim like this? And for me, there was five really big pieces of evidence. I'll go through them really quickly. Number one, consider his teachings. The teachings of Jesus Christ have been preserved for us and passed down from generation to generation as a treasure of brilliant teachings. Things like the golden rule, things like the Sermon on the Mount, things like love your neighbor as yourself, things like love your enemies. These are the teachings of Jesus Christ, absolutely brilliant. 
And so for those people who might think that Jesus was a, a lunatic, I want you to just ask yourself, when you read the teachings of Jesus, do those teachings seem like the ravings of a madman to you? Secondly, consider his life. Consider his miracles, his love for the marginalized, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and ultimately the laying down of his life as a sacrifice and as a substitute. It was Time Magazine who once described Jesus as the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of humanity. And you know what? He doesn't fit into any of our political boxes. If you look at what he said about caring for the poor and doing justice, he sounds like a very liberal person. But then if you listen to what he said about morality and the standards of purity that he upheld, he sounds like a very conservative person. And his standards are so high, they're crushing. But yet the people who were most attracted to him, the tax collectors and sinners, found him to have such a gracious and compelling presence that they couldn't wait to be near him. And they were amazed at his life, even those who fell so very far short because his life had matchless beauty. Third, Consider his character. His enemies could not find any fault in him. His friends who knew him really well, they said, this guy's never sinned. I often think the real test of someone's character is when they're under pressure. Jesus, when he was being tortured, said about his torturers, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Amazing. Fourth, consider the biggest reason to have faith in Jesus is his resurrection and victory over death. Think of that. Everybody is going to die. It's so final. And we all want to know, is there any hope beyond this life? Jesus claims to actually have conquered death in our place for our sins to bring us hope beyond the grave. And the truth is, none of us know when our time is going to come. And we need to make a decision about this, Jesus, before it's too late for us. And there's evidence for the fact that this is actually true. There's not just an empty tomb. There was over 500 witnesses. There's appearances. There's writings. And they began to spread this message for the rest of their lives. Even if it meant their own demise, they stuck to this story. And as a movement, this, this, this first century Jesus following began to sweep the whole known world without parallel. And it's still happening. There's over 2 billion Christians living today. People from every ethnicity on every continent, every nationality, every economic and social and intellectual background, they all speak of having an encounter with the risen Jesus and they believe in his gospel, the good news, because he promises eternal life through faith in his name. This is what the angels promised, right? I bring you good news of great joy. And so when you think about that question, who is Jesus, and you consider his, his teachings and his life and his character and his resurrection and his gospel, his good news, and the impact that he and his followers have made on this world, you find that there's there's actually some pretty compelling reasons to believe this message about Jesus being the Son of God and the Savior of the whole world being actually true. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, if I go outside and I find a key on the road and it fits a lock in my house, I'm going to assume that that key was made by the same person that made the lock. And then he said this. Now, if I find a set of teachings set out in pre-modern society that has proven itself with such universal validity that it has fascinated and satisfied millions of people in every century. 
including the brightest minds in history and the simplest hearts, that it has made itself at home in virtually every culture, inspired masterpieces of beauty in every field of art, continues to grow rapidly and spread and assert itself in lands where essentially the name of Jesus Christ was not even heard. If such teaching so obviously fits the locks of so many human hearts in so many times and in so many places, are they likely to be the work of a deceiver or a fool? Or is it more likely that they are actually designed by the heart maker? This is what the shepherds went to go explore. And when they found what the angels testified about, this is what they discovered. Verse 16, then they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Just as they had been told, they investigated the evidence and they, all, they found out it was all true. Now, even though people today go on this journey and find this evidence that's there, I found something funny happen. Sometimes, even though the evidence is there, some people still don't turn to Jesus. And the reason, I think, is because of the implications that turning to Jesus would have on their lives. But can I challenge you there? If you're doing that, that's not really being intellectually honest. And I would encourage you to take this evidence very seriously, which brings me back to this nativity scene for just a moment. Often the nativity scene shows up in great paintings throughout church history, and there's a lesson there that many people are not aware of. See, any good nativity painting or nativity set that's worth its salt always includes two figures meant to teach us a very important lesson. And it's a lesson that we really need to take to heart. It's a lesson that's taught by these two figures, and I want you to see if you can spot these two overlooked nativity participants in these paintings. These teachers, you'll notice, they're always close to one another. And they're often very close to the baby. Look really carefully at these paintings. They are focused and gazing upon the new king. Have you spotted them yet? You can hardly miss them. I'm, of course, talking about the ox and the donkey. Let me show you those paintings one more time. They are an ever-present duo, often painted with human characteristics, kneeling, praying, and gazing at the Lord right along with Mary and Joseph and the rest. Have you ever noticed them before? Have you ever wondered why they're always there? Is it simply because Jesus was born in a manger and mangers have animals? Of course, that's one reason. But there's another reason that comes through a prophecy written 700 years before Jesus was born in the book of Isaiah chapter 1. When Isaiah said this, the ox knows its owner and a donkey knows its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap and is sleeping, whom angels guard and shepherds sing? This is a prophecy and a rebuke to rebellious Israel, and it was an absurd comparison, right? So as early as the second century A.D., 
Church theologians made the connection of the ox and the donkey and the manger. And from that time on, painters of nativity sets and sculptors often will include them as worshipers of the Christ child, as a silent rebuke of everyone who rejects the story of the birth of the Savior of the world. Friends, here's the point. It's not enough to feel nostalgia or sentimentality towards Christmas past. We must also experience the awe that we would feel when we come into the presence of our sovereign God. We must know who our master is, just as the ox and the donkey teach us in Isaiah chapter 1, born a child and yet a king. And so as you look at your nativity set tonight or tomorrow, and you see the ox and the donkey there, please don't move them to the back row. I encourage you to put them right up front near the baby because they are our role models, because they are our teachers, because they are telling us who this child really was and is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. As the hymn writer said, seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable and see your God extended on the straw. On a personal note, this is the decision that I made after I went on that search for truth. For me, I can honestly say that since committing my life to Jesus Christ, he has totally changed everything about my life. That's why he means everything to me. He's my savior. And this is why he's the most important person in my life. And as a husband and as a father, this is a decision that we've made in our family. We are like the ox and the donkey gonna sit at our savior's feet. And we're gonna worship him for who he really is, our Lord and our King. And my prayer for you and for your family is that you will do the same this Christmas. Because that message from the angels is not just a message for me, it's a message for you. Let me remind you what they said. For unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who's Christ the Lord. Which brings me to you. What will be your reaction to the nativity story? What will be your answer to that question, who is Jesus Christ? Will your story be that you clung to your skepticism like I did, that you clung to your doubts and your fears so tightly that you wouldn't believe that there's a God who cared about you? Or will your story be that you humbled yourself like the ox and the donkey before your God and open your heart to him as your creator and your redeemer? That choice is a choice that only you can make. In the next few moments, I want to give you an opportunity to think about what you've heard tonight and think about what it would look like for you to engage or re-engage with the person of Jesus this Christmas. For you, maybe it means opening your Bible that you haven't opened in a long time. For you, maybe it means going home and telling your family, we're gonna get back into church next year. Or maybe for you, it means I have a lot of questions. I wanna go to one of those alpha groups that they talked about starting in February. Or maybe you just wanna come up to me and talk to me as a pastor after this service and pray together. I would love to help you and introduce you to the most important person in my life, Jesus Christ. I don't know what your first step is, but this Christmas, would you consider re-engaging with Jesus? 
and humbling yourself? Because that voice that you hear on the inside, that, that thing that rattles around on the inside of you that says, I ought to, but I'm afraid, or I get too busy sometimes, would you not miss this opportunity? Would you, not, would you just be open to what God would want to do in and through you and your life? The Lord Jesus desires that we not only know him, but that we receive his forgiveness and that we worship him as our master and our king. Would you pray with me? I want to invite the worship team to come up for one final song. As we pray together, let's bow our heads and close our eyes tonight. Father, in these next few moments as we sing this song, would you hear us again today worshiping you, humbling ourselves? Would you hear us saying to you, Lord Jesus, yes to you as our king, yes to you, the light of the world? Would you hear us saying, Lord, we love you, God, we thank you so much for those of us who have already embraced your son. Thank you for this reminder on Christmas of the greatest gift in all of the world. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, God, for being with us. We worship you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we finished our Advent wreath. We started week one talking about the hope of the world that Jesus had brought, and then we talked about the the peace that Jesus brought to this world because of his sacrifice. On week three, we talked about the joy that this baby brings into our lives and into our worlds and into our hearts. And then on week four, we talked about the love of God that's been poured out through the person of Jesus Christ. And tonight, we lit the Christ candle, the light of the world. And this light never goes out. This light's always shining because the light of Jesus Christ always endures, always protects. His love never fails. So this is the light of the world, and as one of your pastors, I offer this light to you, and I encourage you to share this light with others.